0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants. And they're both boys and girls
1: because I've seen them. Women and men.
0: Hello and welcome to episode three of the Boys in Short Pants, the or, fourth episode. Yeah,
2: or is it episode four? It's episode
0: three. Uh, so to this week we're going to be talking a little bit about the, the elephant that we've kind of been dancing around for the last few. And that's uh, the conservative leadership race, uh, which is now up to 14 candidates. It's a thrilling uh, chase sequence, really. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to discuss a little bit Not so much like a candidate by candidate Sort of like here are our hot takes uh, Which is you know all well and good But not really our, our value add uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about the rules Of how this race works uh, We're going to be talking about uh, The polling that's come out around it And what the sort of problems with that And with the industry in general And then uh, we're going to be actually talking about the paths to victory So if we were advising these people what would we be doing? Uh, so let's, let's kick off with the rules, Etienne. Um, you, you're a conservative member. You'll be voting in this leadership race. Do uh, you want to tell us a little bit about how the rules work? Um, so the number one thing to know with
2: the rules is it's not first past the post. I think that's what a lot of people think it
0: is. And first past the post in this sense being the person who just gets the most votes wins.
2: Wins, yeah. Right. So a 14-way split, that would that could theoretically be someone with like 12% of the vote or 20% or some ridiculous number like that. Um, whereas it's a, me- uh, a ranked ballot. So there's 338 ridings in Canada.
0: Yeah, it's a ranked ballot with a points system, too.
2: Yes. It's weighted. So the 338 ridings are each assigned 100 points. Those 100 points are proportionally allocated to the percentage of the votes that each of the candidates gets. Right. So if you're living in, say, Calgary, is Jason
0: Kenney's old riding. Which is
2: Jason Kenney's old riding up for by-election right now. And your Lisa rate and you get 10% of the votes there, you're going to get 10 points towards your global tally. And the global tally of points that you need uh, is, I'm going to be a little off on the math here, but it's like 17,000, so it's 338 times 100 divided by 2, my math, isn't that good off the top of my head? That sounds correct to me, yeah. Yeah, it's it's roughly 17,000 points.
0: yeah, and the, the really the critical thing there is that Calgary-Middleton has a lot of members, right? So let's say you have a thousand members and a hundred of them vote for you, you get ten points. Let's say there's a riding in in rural Newfoundland that has ten members and one of them votes for you, you that's get ten, 10 points. points. So yeah. that's worth the same as your as your thousand or hundred and in, in whatever other riding. So-, so there's a real effort among conservative organizers in the leadership race. To scoop up orphan ridings, as they're called, kind of like low-membership ridings that are like low-hanging fruit for lots of points.
2: Or to get new uh, members to register in these ridings. So a lot of the orphan ridings, like obviously Western Canada, has a lot of sort of high-population ridings in terms of population of Conservative members, whereas areas of the country where the Conservatives aren't as strong, such as the Atlantic and Quebec, are likely to have EDAs, that is yeah. Electoral District Associations, with substantially lower populations and numbers. Yeah.
0: It, it's kind of so. like it's like World War I or World War II, where you have like your, your very static Western Front uh, you know, trench warfare <laughs> in the Western provinces, uh, where there are lots of members, and you, you're just trying to eke out you know one or two extra percentage points. Whereas in low population, or low membership writings rather, not low population, Low membership writings, you can really make a big swing yeah. very, very quickly through a tank offensive, if, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the, where the I would have North gone Africa. in terms of yeah. analogies. The, but the, the North Africa of uh, the conservative leadership race. Really. But it's
2: absolutely true. You go into rural Newfoundland, you sign up 10 members by, you know, doing a, a breakfast there or whatever. Yeah. And you can easily scoop up, you know, another 50 points. Yeah. Whereas scooping up 50 points in say the gta is going to you could be there the entire election and never achieve that yeah exactly um in a singular riding
0: and we'll contrast this a little bit with the the sort of ndp leadership race that's finally starting uh is it i didn't, yeah, it, I didn't well, know this there's there's I, now I, an uh official candidate in elections canada's terms anyway if who, not by their own. Uh, charlie who, who
2: seems rather tentative to yeah. declare himself a candidate but. uh
0: come on charlie uh, but for them, it's one member, one vote. So every vote counts exactly the same, whether you're in a riding with two members or a riding with 10,000. doesn't matter. Your vote counts the exact same. So the conservative leadership race is quite different. Uh, it's meant to sort of... It, it's the result of a compromise between... Uh, at the time of the merger between the Progressive Conservative Party and the Canadian Alliance, uh, this was sort of a way that the... The Progressive Cana- the, the Conservatives of the party could sort of maintain an influence despite the fact that they had fewer members and uh, kind of globally or sort of more regionally distributed rather than like the high membership western-based alliance and reform party
2: so the other crucial part in the race is uh, along with the point system is that it uses a ranked ballot right and so the way the ranked ballot will work logistically is that every conservative member We'll get a ballot on them with 14 or 15 or 72 names, whatever
0: uh,
2: <laughs> whatever the race grows to by that point. Yeah. And they'll put them all in order from 1 to 75. Yeah, I, should,
0: I, should, I should take this time to announce that I am, in fact, running for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership. Honestly, yeah. I sort of regret not having run. You should have, dude. Just raise your profile. You know, like, you got the podcast. You got a leadership <laughs> run. Yeah. You would have come out, like, you would have just been hired, like... With, like with $1 dollar or... from
2: every listener, we would have $10 yeah. in the oh, bank no,
0: we actually, for, we're, for, we're for doing, the race. We're doing pretty well on listeners, so thanks, guys, also. But,
2: um, but I mean, to as a complete digression here, you were – so the initial price you had to put up was $25,000. And that gave you basically until late December of a platform of leadership right. candidate, even after that. Even up until well, we've
0: had people drop out since, right? And we they have took advantage have of that.
2: One person, two. Uh, well, one person who took advantage of that, right. Tony Clement, yeah. didn't really take well, advantage of it. Right, right, right. Um,
0: well, we, Adrian Snow, who dropped out, who no one ever heard she of, she was never even in the race. Dan Lindsay, Dan dropped Lindsay, out. Adrian then, Snow uh, was never in it. she, oh, just she never she hypothetically
2: put said she was going to do it. I oh, don't, okay, I don't see. know that she.
0: And they had Tony Clement as well, who was like actually a serious candidate. Just uh, dis- yeah, Tony, you are the best. Also, please come on the show. <laughs> you are you're the social media hound of uh, of the Conservative Party. Please come on the show. We'll we'll do
2: it. we'll try and do that at some point. That'd be so good. Um, yeah. So with like a twenty five thousand dollars upfront fee to get in, it's twenty five thousand more to get the email list, which is due February. 24th, near. I think you said. Yeah, it's February 24th, some some point in late February. And then a $50,000 performance bond. I'm not 100% sure on the financing, but I believe you can take a loan out for the uh, seems, for the performance
0: bond. That sounds pretty standard, yeah.
2: Um, So, like, theoretically, you could be in the race in all the debates up until this point, having spent only $25,000 yep. of actual hard cash.
0: Yeah, which is, like, pretty that that's not much money to get your name out there if you're an ambitious conservative.
2: I feel like any moderately ambitious person could raise 25,000, dollars especially considering like from your donors, they are getting refunds on a substantial portion yeah, exactly. of that. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think this is much less regulated than like actual election contributions too. How's so? a I, do Elections Canada like the restrictions on donations to political parties apply to leadership races? Yeah, it's oh, all
2: it's all the same stuff. Okay, well, it's number all number. the same financing rules. There is as I understand it just another pocket made for people to donate to leadership races. So it's
0: still the $1500 cap applies.
2: It is $1500 cap. Okay,
0: it's not like a separate pocket so you can apply 1500 to a leadership race and then 1500 to the party or it's just like
2: It's 1500 I believe party 1500 Leadership Race, 1500 EDA. Okay, cool. Um, So you have three different pockets now to donate from. Gotcha. Um, What I was gonna say is that it would've been nice uh, it's sort of interesting. And I think there's some candidates doing this a little bit, which has just been $25,000, put up the performance bond, don't do anything stupid, don't even have to run a real campaign. But you get to show up on that platform and pitch your ideas right. and berate who you want to berate. Yeah, and in, your,
0: them, in your 10 allotted seconds. In
2: your 10 allotted <laughs> seconds at a time yeah. <laughs> the debate and just be able to say what, what you want. Like yeah. It would not uh, be surprising to see. Like, yeah. If anyone ambitious wanted to do it, yeah, like know, a, sense, a 25-year-old outsider yeah. from absolutely in sense, anywhere they're, in they're Canada. In just
0: really dumb podcasters, because you know, like we we figured we can do this for a lot less than twenty-five thousand dollars. Just get a platform with a, a you know, a, a small but devoted listener base. <laughs> I mean, I mean, at least,
2: uh, I mean, at least if. You go and do it there. You're getting a slightly broader audience than we're able to do, and they do uh, they know, do the honestly, promotion for you. You're honestly, not,
0: in a couple of months, that probably won't even be true. You're not you're not <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're not stuck having to send out desperate Twitter messages for
0: supporters. Oh at, hell no, uh, we're doing great. guys. At we're 2 a.m., we're doing great.
2: Um. So wait, the other part we haven't mentioned about the leadership race is uh, the rank ballot.
0: Yeah. No, well, we, we t- touched on it, but then got very yes. sidetracked. So you're yeah. Right. So the way so there the rank is a ranked ballot, ballot. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you have the, the you have the names, you have the numbers, you number them. And so you're looking for greater than 51% of the yep. vote or 17,000 yep. points. And you get that through uh, the lowest contenders being knocked off right. in subsequent rounds of balloting. So like
0: first round, lowest guy gets knocked off. So let's say you have 13 candidates, your first round 13, number 13 gets dropped off. Second round you have 12 and you rank accordingly, though actually... You guys just do one ballot. You don't do a ballot, a fresh ballot for every round. Correct. It's right.
2: a single simultaneous ballot. Right. And so the lowest ranked on or the lowest ranked individual gets knocked off of everyone's ballots who put him first. Mm-hmm. And then their second vote is added to the tally of whoever right. is, until uh, someone's is over, still in the race.
0: Until someone's over fifty percent of the points. Correct. Right. So for just that to arcane. occur,
2: like just based on the split of 14 it's going to require in my guess
0: like at least five rounds
2: three to five maybe um at least probably probably towards the five end of i would i would say so but one of the things the the party sort of talked about is that because it's all going to be done by computers and it's all going to be done simultaneously in the blink of an eye sort of like a scantron format the computer will spit out the answer and then there's going to be the need to you know you gotta do some drama to hype it up, you can't spin just be like, some plates yeah. and uh, <laughs> and five rounds of balloting have been run through,
0: and the winner is this. It's yeah. going to be like and the first round. It's a little anticlimactic. Otherwise, yeah, you got to make a spectacle. And actually, the NDP leadership race is doing a similar thing, where they're kind of doing like this sort of weird semi-primary thing, where the votes are exactly the same, but they're doing like mini conventions in five cities across five weeks, uh, in different parts of the country to kind of like, yeah, it's a. Basically, like the technology makes it so that you have to extract the same or more drama with uh, much less actual, like, flurrying of paper that gives it the drama to begin with.
2: Yeah, because one of the secondary objectives of leadership races beyond just picking a leader. Is to draw interest in media attention yeah, to the party and, and grow
0: it too. Yeah. Frankly, you get members to sign up, you get money, you get uh, you know, you, you get your ideas debated. All the
2: parties take a cut, I believe, off of the donations yeah. to their uh, yeah. to their leadership contestants. That
0: said, though, party leadership tends to be quite expensive for parties. Like even though there are like high fees and everything, it's still like something they don't want to do all the time because you know, not only are you you just kind of like you don't have a leader. On a permanent basis, so the fundraising gets a little depressed because no one really knows like where you're gonna go. Uh, So it's hard, and you know, media attention gets a little down because once again, people don't really know like what, where the party's gonna go. It's kind of you're kind of treading water. Uh, and also, yeah, you have to, like, pay for convention space. Uh, podiums. You know, podiums. You, you have to buy
2: uh, 75 podiums for each of your yeah. candidates <laughs> to be on stage simultaneously. So they, there
0: are a lot of expenses for parties associated with leadership races that, that are that are complex and that, you're, you know, even though they, they do try to turn them into fundraising opportunities, they, they're lucky to break even.
2: So sort of the sum coming out of, and the reason why it's important to understand how the conservative leadership race is structured is because it gives... Uh, different institutional advantages to different candidates. For instance, you have uh, a bunch of candidates like Raitt and Chong from the GTA.
0: Michael Chong, who is a a former intergovernmental affairs minister for a brief period of time, and then Lisa Raitt, who is a former transport minister and other portfolios as well. Uh, Yeah, they're both from from the GTA. Though, as they will constantly remind you, Michael Chong was born on a farm, and Lisa (laughs) Raitt is originally from Cape Breton.
2: And she worked at the Dairy Queen.
0: Also at the Dairy Queen.
2: Um, But they're going to be fighting over the same points in the same area in terms of sort of their incumbency advantage in the region they're from. Yeah. Whereas candidates like Max and Bernier um, has to split an entire province of Quebec and all its points. Yeah. With.
0: Stephen Blaney, and maybe yeah. that's it, I think? Those are the only he, two candidates from Quebec? The
2: only other one from Quebec, and some polls have them doing as well as, I believe, like 70% in Quebec.
0: That sounds about right, Which yeah.
2: counts as a hell of a lot of points. Yeah. And so if one person is able to sweep an entire region and take all their points, and then split, you know, evenly in some of the other regions, they're going to be doing great on the first, second, and third rounds yeah. of ballots. Yeah, especially
0: because Max and Berenier, for instance, and we'll, well, I won't get too into this because uh, we want to talk about it later, but... Um, he can sort of take that big base and then like draw from other bits until he's over the fifty percent mark. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, polling.
2: Yes. Polling. So we've we mentioned polling a little bit, um, and one of the stories that came out recently in the Toronto Star was a poll discussing uh, Kevin O'Leary being yeah.
0: like former blowhard, actually current blowhard,
2: <laughs> always blowhard. Yeah. The uh, the front runner of the race by. A mile for all all intents and purposes. And even CNN picked up on this story and did a piece about, like, Shark Tank contestant to leading Canadian Tory leadership race or or whatever it was. Something along those lines. So the interesting thing about polling um, of a leadership race... It's
0: super hard to do. Is it's
2: very, very hard to do. Yeah. Polling the general public and determining who the public says they like the most... Yeah,
0: honestly worse than useless.
2: Is because it's not... First of all, it's only members who are voting, and they likely have a like a vastly different view of politicians yeah. than the general public. And then secondly, it's a ranked ballot. So doing polling on the basis of sort first of choice. first past the post yeah. doesn't apply to a ranked ballot. Let, yeah. me, let me give you an example of this, is to say like uh, someone like uh, Kelly Leach in... Uh, in the previous, like, few months has made a name for herself having very divisive policy. Yeah. And so having very divisive policy gets your name in the news. Yeah. And it will get you a lot of supporters.
0: Very divisive policy and also bashing the other and The candidates. other candidates. Yeah.
2: So what this will do is it'll sort of give you a spike in popularity because your name's in the news and people know who you are. Yeah. Um, and some people might support your policies. But what it'll also do is it'll polarize the race and you'll be the bottom of a lot of people's choices. So if you're uh, a Kelly Leach candidate and you start saying like terrible things about the other candidates, and you're, let's say, Laurent here likes uh, Maxime Bernier, and Maxime Bernier is your boy, and I'm saying, yeah. oh, Bernier is terrible. He'll, he'll never win, he sucks. And you're a Bernier number one. You're not going to be a Kelly Leach number two. Right. So a lot of these races are sort of ran on congeniality and being yeah. like nice to everyone else's yeah. candidates in hopes that you'll be second, third, fourth yeah. pick on their ballots. Yeah, and as as,
0: as the defunct but well beloved uh, Canadian political podcast The strategist pointed out, this was Alison Redford in Alberta. Uh, what she sort of did to become a uh, progressive conservative leader in Alberta was uh, uh, endorse other people. Yes, he said if. I get eliminated, you should support this guy. Because then the people in that person's camp think, oh, that means Alison Radford must be a good second choice for me, too.
2: The difference with that, though, is that was a delegated convention. Yeah, So for sure. mul- multiple rounds of balloting, yeah, yeah. so there's the possibility to do the horse trading behind the scenes. Yeah. But the intent is roughly the same. Yeah, exactly. It's like to the, stay friends with the this, people in all the camps.
0: Yeah, the essential strategy is the same. The tactics of how you carry it out are a bit yeah. different. But, yeah, it's the same strategy. Yeah. And we'll talk, to that, we'll talk about that here with Bernier in a bit.
2: So what this means in terms of polling is someone like Leach is able to create an artificial spike, and she'll be on you know the top of the polling list, yeah. and say with twenty percent of the support, uh, with twenty percent of the support, Leach is the front runner. Yeah. But that doesn't do you any good if
0: everyone else hates her.
2: If everyone else hates her and yeah. she's okay, twenty percent on the first round, you know, twenty-one percent on the second round of votes, and then drop twenty-three down. on yeah. like. Gaining incrementally after that isn't going to do you good. Yeah, exactly. Good. If you're
0: first in round one with 20%, and then like everyone else has you as their 15th choice, you just, you're not going to move. You're absolutely going to lose. You're going you're to gonna keep slipping, 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 slipping.
2: So the smarter strategy here, and uh, Maxim Bernier to an extent has been employing this, is to say, like, I welcome everyone. Yeah. I would like, yeah. I like competition. Yeah. I am a free market man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would prefer there to be more candidates in the race. Yeah. And
0: we'll, we'll get back to Bernier. But, um, so there was a big Toronto Star poll, as as we mentioned, showing showing Kevin O'Leary in, the fir- in, in first. And yeah, as tent mentioned, um, that's not useful because like he has the best name recognition. So obviously people in the general public, even who are conservative-leaning but aren't necessarily members, uh, are going to say, like, okay, yeah, he's the guy I've heard of. I like this guy. The thing with the polling industry, and I think this is a problem that we don't talk really enough about, and, and I, this isn't to attack... Polling's viability, in the sense of like it's not scientific, it is, but there are problems with it. So, the polling industry historically, uh, you know, it, it does polling for all kinds of commercial products, etc. And it does the the free political polls that whose results they release uh, publicly as kind of a, a loss leader, as an advertisement, basically. Like, oh, like Forum called this election. that, And then the commercial clients think, wow, that Forum. must mean they know what they're doing.
2: I mean that's how they get media they Exactly. Do, yeah. They yeah, do it's, political it's, polls it's and they show up in media for free.
0: Yeah. So in the past uh poll, poll people responded to pollsters when they called. Uh, response rates used to be, you know, well north of 70-80% and there was actually like in, in the 60s and 70s quite a big like existential crisis over what would happen when um, response rates dropped below 50. Like people thought, "Oh, that could be the death of the industry." Today response rates are somewhere oh, like below 2%. Very, very, very few people actually respond to pollsters anymore. Um, so when you're talking about uh, political party leadership races, uh, you're talking about 2% of people who respond to pollsters out of the general population. Of those 2%, 2% are actually members of political parties. That's roughly uh, 2% of Canadians are members of political parties. So 2% of 2% is, you know, it's a sample that exists, but if you're dialing random numbers, which is what pollsters do, you are going to take a very long time to find only people who are political party members, and that's gonna be exceedingly expensive. And
2: it's not, it's not only political party members, it's members of the party you are polling.
0: Exactly, yeah, so that's even less. So when you think 2% of 2% is political parties generally, members of the conservative party, even less. Uh, you have to dial a lot of numbers to get a representative sample. So that's why we personally or like, I think we speak for both of us here when I say that you should really take party leadership polls with a considerable grain of salt.
2: Absolutely. Unless they specify that. So the problem is with methodology, right? Is that if you do an untargeted poll of
0: just... The general public.
2: The general public you're not going to be, the, the opinions represented there aren't going to be reflective of what the sentiment in the race is. Yeah. What pollsters would love to do, and this is obviously very complicated, is they would love to just be able to poll Conservative Party members. Yeah. And that is the way, and if they could get Conservative Party members to rank their preferences, maybe their top five preferences. That would be
0: awesome, yeah. They
2: could get a sense, an actual sense of how the race is going. Yeah.
0: But the problem is that the Conservative Party database and their data... Is their most valuable asset, and they aren't just going to let anybody have it for free.
2: Yes, and like they're not going to hand it to the pollsters unless they're paying them to do the poll. Yeah. So the only person realistically in a position to do this is the Conservative Party or anyone who holds a membership list to say, listen, here is everyone we have in our database, pull these people. Get a sample size out of this. Like, I don't know if that would be possible because all the candidates who paid for uh, for there the membership list clauses
0: that mean that they can't like publicly disseminate the list. Yeah, or like use it for polling I mean, like, purposes let,
2: let's say, and let's stuff say,
0: like, like that. But I get a hold of twenty five thousand dollars, and I say, okay, Conservative Party, give me your list. I'm a leadership. I mean, I I think
2: you'd be knocked out in the vetting
0: process. Yeah, but like, let's say I I looked like. I think your
2: tattoo of the Communist Manifesto and (laughs) the (laughs) proletariat rising up on your chest would be the first red flag.
0: I, I, for the record, I have no tattoos. Um, I'm only bearded, uh, which is is the only like real indication that uh, of my Marxist sympathies. No, but if I gave them $25,000 and I said, okay, here's $25,000, I'm a leadership candidate now, give me your list, and then I just, like, posted it on Reddit or something, right? Like, they want to avoid that happening, so I think they're – we don't know this for sure, but I I would imagine there are probably, like, steps they've taken to ensure that doesn't happen.
2: Yeah, I think it just comes – I don't think it comes through in, like, cyber steps in that, like, state-of-the-art – you no, know, it's probably d- just like, do do this and we will sue the shit out of you. Yeah, there's probably yeah. like legal clauses and yeah. then... Yeah, for sure. It's also sort of inherent to the vetting you, process. You, you
0: are signing a lot of papers before they give you that list.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, with, without a doubt. Yeah. And inherent to the vetting process, I mean, there's 14 people or 75 people, depending on who's, uh, whose numbers you're following. But those 14 people are all like pretty institutional conservatives. Like, yeah. Like,
0: well, with a few exceptions. Yeah, of course. But
2: who, who are your exceptions? Like... Leary. Yeah, but he's he's a known quantity That's in, true. in that sense. like It's <laughs> yeah. it's not someone coming out of the woods from, like, Burnaby, B.C. And I don't know if Burnaby, B.C. Hey, has man. woods, actually. <laughs> like, uh, hey, yeah, man. They got some woods. They got some woods. I, I mean, just, dude, honestly,
0: the Northwest, like, you can bet on them having a forest. it's like, it, fair.
2: Probably, probably like, big trees. I, probably I trees there. with hippies chained to them.
0: Yeah, that is also true. Yeah, no, I grew up in the Northwest. It's a lovely place.
2: Uh, but yeah, it's not—it's not just random people showing up. Like everyone in the race is known quantities, although people may not have heard Maybe of like, like
0: Dan Lindsay and Adrian no, no, but they're already out.
2: No, he's known. Like, oh, is he really Dan Lindsay or? presented at Manning last year? Oh, like he's—he's okay. he's on the radar for
0: uh, for the for for our listeners. That's the Manning Conference, which is uh, coming up in a few weeks. Coming up in a few weeks, absolutely. I think we're, I'm going. Are you going? I, I think so. If I oh, can. we should try and get some interviews there. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> All right, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, that that would not be half bad. No, it'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so th- that's our problems with polling. Uh, as we say, take take everything you see in public polls with a grain of salt. Remember that the response rates are really low. Remember that members are actually really, really hard to find because there aren't that many of them. If it's a leadership poll that did not poll the membership, just, like, throw it away. Close the
2: article. Yeah. Regret that you gave them, you the know, click. advertising budget.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just really not worth your time. Uh, So for the rest of the episode, uh, not quite the rest of the episode, but we're going to be talking about the the paths to victory for for a couple candidates who we think... I think we we could probably say that this is our list for the people we think are likeliest to win, with one exception. But that one exception is, I think, worthwhile to talk about anyway. Yeah, and
2: it's sort of the... uh, So the four candidates we have are almost the most interesting in terms of their path for victory. Yeah. Where there's a lot of candidates who their path to victory is, you know doing well everywhere in Canada. Which is like, ooh. <laughs> like, ooh. If
0: you're paying someone for that campaign advice, um, we, we can do that for cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So an example of
2: that. Yeah. An example of that is like Aaron O'Toole. Aaron, Aaron O'Toole, O'Toole, great guy. Veterans Affairs. Veterans. VAC. Veterans v- Affairs. Yeah. Thank you. Canada. Um, very, very briefly of Veterans Affairs, like former military man, like lawyer, all around great guy. Yeah, looks like an Irishman. Yeah. Um, He's an Irishman, I guess. I guess O'Toole gives it away. Yeah. Um, but his path to victory is based on doing well all over Canada, and so it's not actually that interesting to talk about. He doesn't have a strong regional bias. He doesn't have. He's like from
0: Ontario, I think. Right? Maybe? Yeah. Exactly. We don't even know. Like, yeah. This fuck this guy. Anyway. He's actually a fine guy. Like, he's a very against, nice guy. I have nothing against the man.
2: Um, so the, the four that are more, most interesting are Bernier, O'Leary, Leach, and Chong. Yeah.
0: So do you want to take us away on uh, on Chong? On Chong? Okay, yeah. So Michael Chong is doomed because I like him. Uh, he's a guy who briefly served... You don't like me, do you? Why? Oh, that's true. I do. But you'd probably never win either. Um,
2: <laughs> oh. So Michael
0: Chong, former intergovernmental affairs minister... Uh, very briefly, in the Harper government uh, during, the very minor- briefly. during the minority years, who uh, resigned from his cabinet position after um, Stephen Harper decided to support the Bloc's uh, Quebec Nationhood resolution. Is that right? Or did mm, they prove... No, I'm sorry. No. They proposed their own. Yes, they- the they- Bloc proposed one, and then the Conservatives they undermined their own. it with a yes. slightly different which wording, which I think was like well worth voting for. And actually, strongly disagree with Chong on this. But I am a Quebecer uh, who has like very complicated thoughts about. His identity, like many Quebecers.
2: And yet, you digress.
0: Yeah, so well, it's taking off that. So Michael Chong, uh, former cabinet minister, uh, also the architect of last Parliament's Reform Act, which sort of was like the, this big thing to uh, make Parliament Australian again.
2: It was like lighting a firecracker and having the firecracker just be a dud and just yeah, absolutely. Didn't, didn't go off at well, the Well, yeah, it
0: was basically a very well-intentioned act, and we won't get too much into this, but that, that would have made leadership of parties and of caucuses more accountable to their members um but it was watered down in several key ways that made it more or less yeah as a it put it a dud and no one wanted it yeah uh though I, I think members of the general public wanted it andrew Coyne wanted it and he's kind of a one-man lobbyist himself <laughs> um he yeah with his sort of like uh anyways so chong good guy likes a carbon tax um uh, he is a little bit the Don Quixote of this campaign. He, he is a bit tilting at a windmill and that the people who like him best are, frankly, liberals. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and the, like, four progressive conservatives that are still around. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about his path to victory because I think he has one, though it is very narrow. Uh, and that is really exploiting the point system for all it's worth.
2: I mean, his path to victory really depends on the continued existence of a substantial Red Tory constituency. Yeah, he needs
0: to be recruiting those people like there's no tomorrow.
2: The idea—so this is where I have doubts about his path to victory—is that, okay, say, to use just bullshit numbers off the top of my head, say the Red Tories compose half the party yeah. when, when it was founded, and say there's still you know, 50% of Red Tories around— The odds of Chong getting all those red Tories isn't great, and then the and those numbers honestly sound optimistic. Yeah, I would
0: estimate that the number of red Tories is probably somewhere closer to like thirty. Yeah, Yeah. so those numbers obviously incredible. Okay, let's when when the the parties merged. The Canadian Alliance was much more vibrant and had way more members. Yes, PCs did,
2: and the party's been dominated by
0: sort of the Reform current
2: Harper, not the Peter McKay. Absolutely. Um, Since then, and so the the odds of it composing fifty percent of the party is incredibly optimistic. Yeah. Um. So let's call it forty percent. So he would need to get that entire base of the party, and not and then show up in the top five of you know ten eleven percent of the rest of the party, and I just don't think that's
0: likely. Yeah, I think some of Bernie's libertarians might like him, but like even then, it's it's a narrow path that requires yeah uniting the red Tory caucus and the sort of caucus as the membership um and which is a tough act because he actually has competition and sort of red Tory front with with Aaron O'Toole and with Lisa Raid
2: but this is where so say he has substantial support within the libertarian side for whatever reason Bernier if he's number one on those libertarians ballots and say Chong gets number two Chong is never going to see those votes. Right. Because Bernie is because never going to get knocked off yeah, the ballot. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So you need the support of the candidates who are most likely to get off, uh, get knocked off the ballot. And maybe the first among them there would be Deepak
0: O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. that's not a bad point. Uh, but that's probably not going to be a huge pool of voters either. Sorry. Sorry, Deepak. Um, but yeah, so so Chong is a really, really narrow path, I think, it, Like, as much as he is beloved by liberals and uh, this sort of, like, centrist media establishment, he, I think, is going to be a real long shot uh, to become a conservative party leader, especially because, yeah, he's made a carbon tax a big part of his his campaign. Revenue-neutral carbon tax, I mean, which is actually, like, not frankly very different from what Justin Trudeau is saying, because Justin Trudeau is just saying, like, I'm going to leave it up to the provinces to decide what the structure of each carbon tax will be.
2: That's, in fact, incredibly different. They're, well, in they're, the, they're not even remotely similar.
0: Well, in the sense that, like, Chong would have a revenue-neutral federal carbon tax where Justin Trudeau is saying, here is a national carbon price floor and provinces can do whatever they want.
2: But that's not revenue neutral. The only similarity there.
0: Well I'm saying is it can be. No it
2: can't it's never gonna be revenue neutral because Well if the
0: province the province of British Columbia wants it to be revenue neutral, they can have it be revenue neutral. Like
2: it is for them. But what's Ontario's stated purpose?
0: Ontario's is well I don't who knows what the Ontario government. But who are the only provinces that don't have any sort of carbon pricing at this point? It's Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, so all the maritime Atlantic provinces, Saskatchewan uh, which is definitely going to be revenue neutral, and uh, Manitoba, which is in the process of sort of formulating a cap and trade. Correct. Right.
2: But my point, and yeah, not not to get into carbon tax policy today, because that's not the point of today's show, um, is that when you throw it over the provinces, you're going to get a hodgepodge of different sure, things. Sure, but it's that's none like, of them. You think like, they'd be collectively? More cons-
0: yeah, but you think they'd be more consistent with a conservative small government ideology to just let the local government handle it.
2: Anyway, um, not in everything. <laughs> no, not when I disagree with them. I mean, you, you can you can call it that, but you can just not call it revenue neutral. Justin Trudeau's carbon tax is not revenue neutral. Well, it's, it's federally revenue neutral, yeah. meaning we're imposing these measures and then we're outsourcing it to the provinces yeah. to spend this money however they choose. Well, and the
0: provinces, exactly, can make it revenue neutral if they want, which and seems like the
2: most. Many, like, many aren't. Yeah, so. but
0: it seems like the most like. Small government Quote unquote You, you force
2: taxation Upon the provinces And you ask the provinces Who are starved for cash And you ask them To make it revenue neutral mm. And they're like
0: But why are they Starved for cash No you? way Jose Yeah Wait we're not getting Into this <laughs> So uh, to move on from Chong So I think we can Conclude there Chong is a narrow path To victory That really relies On him uniting The red Tories Of the the Conservative Party, of which there are not an enormous number.
2: And digging up the skeletons of many other yeah. red Tories and reanimating them to vote. So I yeah. hope his necromancy is Yeah, annoying. the necromancy
0: <laughs> campaign. I, that's something I can get behind. Uh Bernier.
2: Who, who's next? Bernier? Maxim Bernier. Okay. I'll start with Maxim Bernier. Bernier. <laughs> we do need that that little clip. I will
0: put it in, don't worry.
2: Um so he has of any candidate, I would say he has perhaps the most uh, the most significant regional bias. Yeah, for sure. Uh, bias so he, bias a, not being a
0: derogatory term here we, at all. We should we should give his background briefly. He is a former foreign affairs and other portfolios minister. Small, Actually, foreign affairs sm- small business and tourism. Yeah, small foreign affairs is almost mean to pick on because he was like terrible in that portfolio. He did better elsewhere. I, um, I don't know about that. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, he, I challenge that for the record. He, he is he is a staunch libertarian. Um, yeah. and, I challenge that for the record as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he is from the province of Quebec, which I, I hope you won't challenge uh, for the record. Um, that's the best
2: thing you've said so far in the description. Yeah,
0: that's true. Um, so, so yeah, Bernier, Maxime Bernier, uh, fairly... Not necessarily polarizing, it was certainly controversial. He's had a bit of a mixed record in government. I uh, I think he honestly might be best known for leaving classified documents at his Hells Angels linked girlfriend's house. Would you contest that? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Within Quebec, I believe his father was a quite a prominent politician as yep, well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So he has sort of the family name going for yeah. him.
0: And he's very strong regionally in, in sort of the rural uh, Beauce region near uh, Quebec City.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, but the New reason Bush. why, why um, Bernier is on our list is because of his support within Quebec. Where Quebec has a ton of riding. Yeah, 78. 78 ridings. So times that by
0: 100, you have 7,800 points. That's half what you need to get to the leadership just on its own, right? There. Yeah,
2: give, give or take. Yeah. So if Bernier is able to pull like 70 plus percent of like those possible. points, which is conceivable, yeah, um, he'll have the biggest head start of any candidate towards those yeah. 17,000 points. And so
0: And because he's very ideologically committed, people who share that ideology of, of like libertarianism. Yeah, I think uh, of which there are like quite a few, especially in the prairies.
2: Uh, in the prairies and also just across Canada, I don't think it would be a stretch to say like ten percent of conservatives yeah. identify as libertarian. I would even
0: put it higher than that personally, because libertarianism is a current in, in Western Western in the sense of, you know, Western hemisphere politics that is probably encompassed by like 5-10% depending on the country of of politics um, as a political tendency and within conservative or right-of-center movements, higher than that for obvious reasons. He, I think, like has a very plausible path to victory of like regional domination combined with ideological appeal.
2: Yeah, just, you know, if he gets a 10-15% to 15% spread across the rest of Canada based on Sort of the latent libertarianism in the party, Yeah. then like there's a lot of people I know in Alberta who are libertarians, Yeah. define themselves. I don't know if they're Conservative Party members, uh, but I can see them becoming Conservative Party members to vote for someone like Maxime Bernier, who because, I mean, the Libertarian Party, let's be honest, is not going anywhere anytime right. soon. Um, so if he's able to bring libertarians into the Conservative Party fold all across Canada, then you know getting another ten percent of the votes all across Canada would
0: come, basically get him across the line. Yeah.
2: Come pretty damn close to getting him across that line with the Quebec Cent- or with the Quebec Central
0: Yeah. So uh, that's Bernier. He's uh, good good luck to him as much as I, I like really don't like libertarians. Um I, I still contest that. Yeah fair I mean fair enough. Uh, I, I do want to note very quickly uh that Maxim Bernier's libertarianism is super weird for Quebec um it's really not a current that is normal within Quebec conservatism, which has been historically much more nationalist, much more in tune with like social Catholicism, which is much more about like not disrupting traditional patterns of life instead of like the power of free markets. Um kind of a historical curiosity, but this is what I wrote my master's thesis about, so I thought I'm entitled to mention it. Anyway.
2: Go for it. Um Kevin O'Leary. Yeah, let's do Kevin quickly. I mean the biggest. So Kevin has identified his own path to victory. Yes, uh, being primarily with the eighteen That's to thirty-five year olds.
0: strikes me as wrong. Honestly, I think it comes. It was eighteen to twenty-four. Even actually, is what was it his eighteen words. to twenty-four?
2: Yeah, I I think that that is roughly the same constituency as Max and Bernier is going off. That the yeah, libertarian much more so. component like often uh, people of my age or a little younger find themselves primarily as libertarian, free market oriented. Yeah. rather than social conservative? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the constituency they're going to And he has he has the name recognition. Target? Yeah. And he has the re- name recognition all across Canada. And the other thing I think that is perhaps one of his institutional advantages is when you're looking at a ballot with 14 people on it. Yeah. And you're trying to come up with, you know, the second or third person you're gonna vote for. Yeah. Say you're a big Max and Bernier fan. Yeah.
0: Well, let's be real. Let's say you recognize five names.
2: <laughs> that might be that might be generous for <laughs> yeah. most uh, for most Canadians, even one of the party name, members. Yeah.
0: One of the names you're gonna recognize is Kevin O'Leary.
2: Is gonna be Kevin O'Leary. So much hype. So you're gonna be doing your ballot, and if you put him in second or third place, huge advantage to him. Yeah. As opposed to if you're, you know, a rate fan, and you don't ever learned who Bernier is, and Bernier gets put somewhere in your 8th or ninth yeah.
0: place. Yeah. That said, I think O'Leary's path, as you said, is similar to Bernier's, but I think because Bernier has that big regional advantage, I see him coming much closer on the first couple ballots than O'Leary does, and O'Leary has a lot more to make up in subsequent ballots than
2: Bernier yes, does. I 100% agree with that. I don't yeah. think O'Leary has any regional base. Not really. Um, no. I don't think Quebec... No, Uh, (laughs) he he is a
0: native son, but uh, (laughs) not really in a meaningful way.
2: A meaningful way. Doesn't speak French, so I yeah. don't feel like. And then there's nowhere else in Canada that he's really associated with in particular. Yeah. yeah. Alberta has a little bit of yeah. A liking and for he's him.
0: he's sort of spoken out about Alberta politics by offering uh, you know Rachel Notley a million dollars to resign. <laughs> One million dollars. Yeah. If she, if uh, yeah, if she resigns, then he would he would uh, donate or he would invest a million dollars in the oil sands. Which, if anybody understands the oil sands, is no money. Um, so, yeah, he, he, uh, he's a bit of a blowhard, and he's made a lot of a career off being a blowhard. Uh, I guess good luck to him on continuing that streak. Uh, it is his path to victory, I suppose, is continuing to be a blowhard. So,
2: the last um, thing I'll mention uh, in regards to O'Leary is uh, his fundraising numbers that came out yesterday. Oh, yeah, those were huge. He did a uh, 24-hour fundraising drive and was targeting $25,000, which is effectively the amount you need to pay in yeah. the next... Several weeks yeah. to continue in the race and it said to raise hundred and eighty three thousand dollars I am honestly
0: really surprised by that
2: from something like 900 people yeah. uh, average out that makes ninety they, 90 bucks a piece yeah I, I
0: did math yesterday it was like average ninety hundred bucks uh, which actually honestly really surprised me I thought that O'Leary was like all hype uh, and very little grassroots support because like we expressed our misgivings about that poll earlier but it does seem like he does have some like legitimate support. To the point of people giving him money in the party. So I think he, he is going to be probably one of the front runners. That takes us as to... As much as I hate that because he sucks. But anyway, <laughs> yeah.
2: That takes us to Kelly Leach and uh, her joint run with Nick Cavallis. They are, in fact, uh, I believe 50-50 splitting
0: this bid. And they're both, yeah, <laughs> both their much, names. Eh? Both their names may appear on
2: the ballot by the end yeah. of it. So,
0: so Kelly Leach, I think we both agree that she actually doesn't really have a path to victory. Because we, we talked about this yes. earlier. Um, she is very polarizing. So I think she, she won't get a lot of the second and third preferences.
2: I think she'll stand up at the end of this as the classic case of what not to do in a ranked ballot. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Is
2: piss everyone off, get, you know, the quick win, the, the short-sighted victory, and lose the battle.
0: Yeah, but the only or reason I think... Win
2: the battle, lose the war. Yeah,
0: the only reason we really want to talk about her is because of the weird prominence of one of her campaign advisors.
2: Yeah, so Nick Cavallis is sort of like a hermit crab. Where he uh, he walks in the shells of these campaigns, uses them for a brief time, and walks away. With regards to Kelly's campaign, like, I don't think he's been that much of a boost for it. I think he's sort of taken her off the rails. He's gotten the quick hit. Well, he's,
0: yeah, he's, he's and, certainly, like, made her, like, get a lot of media attention.
2: And I think he's got as much, if not more, than Which her. is weird,
0: eh? It's honestly, like, you wouldn't have seen this happen ten years ago, um... But now we have, like, prominent political staffers who take up a lot more media attention. So, like, Jerry Butts in the prime minister's office.
2: So one of the rule—not rules, but sort of guiding principles working in the Stephen Harper government was that political staffers should be neither seen nor heard. Yeah,
0: and that's honestly kind of a commonplace in, like, plenty of other, like, political outfits, too, is that uh, the staffers should stay more or less invisible.
2: As soon as staffers start taking up, you know, editorial space or— Being profiled in columns, don't be the story. Then they are outgrowing their utility. Yeah. They are. They should be the candidate like run for office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, rather than you know that space that your candidate is not getting in the magazine yeah. or wherever the media. Yeah, if you're is.
0: a staffer, like staff, don't yeah. like play to the camera. You're not there for the camera. Your candidate is. Like, in,
2: in fact, one of the rules in uh, my office was uh, for policy staff rather than comp st- staff. That if you were seen in a media shot, so if you were in the background of a scrum, you owed the office a case of beer, because you, like, you shouldn't be. You, you shouldn't be there. Yeah, why are enough. Why are you standing in the background of the scrum? Like some people have like, want to be in there to be able to like send a picture home to their family and be like, look, I was in I was yeah, in federal but if you politics want to do that, today.
0: If you want to do that, you owe everyone a beer.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the price you have to pay. So
0: that that's we discussed earlier how her her campaign is is really polarizing and that you know she's she's like not gonna get any second ballot. Options, so she'll probably do okay on on the the first ballot. ballot. Like probably top three or four, but I think beyond there, she's gonna just keep sinking.
2: Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you really sink on this well, in terms of like, other people yeah, pass her. I think, yeah, I think her chart will look like maybe 15% and then like flat with a one yeah. degree incline yeah. over subsequent Or people will just like
0: skyrocketing, skyrocketing well past her. Yeah. Okay, so that I think will we'll do it for our, our analysis of, of kind of the path to victory for a couple of these conservative candidates. I think we'd probably say that the only other viable candidate here is Andrew Shear.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree with that? To, to cover him in 30 seconds or less. Strong regional base in uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, yeah. and then strong caucus support. But Very we'll see if that support. translates into popular support across the rest of the country. Yeah.
0: Especially because his region is more saturated with like heavy membership ridings.
2: Yeah. And a little lower population.
0: Also, yeah.
2: Um, so getting the pure number of points will be hard. And yeah. he's going to struggle with name recognition in the rest of the country.
0: Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, good luck to Andrew Scheer. Um, a former Speaker of the House also, which no former Speaker of the House has ever become a party leader or a prime minister. This is true. Them. Yeah. So we have a little bonus treat this week. Uh, for the last 10 minutes, we're going to roll an interview of an interview I had with uh, Professor Paul Wilson, uh, political management expert, former director of policy to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and a general all-around good guy. Hopefully we'll have him on uh, next week for a more comprehensive interview. We'll keep you posted on that. Uh, we're going to roll it now. Dr. Paul Wilson,
1: thanks for joining us. Hi, Laurent. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, so we're here today to talk a little bit about the, the Conflict of Interest Code. It's something we've discussed in, in a previous episode, um, and we'd just like to get some clarification, because it just came out, and uh, today is uh, Wednesday the 25th, that uh, Justin Trudeau took a trip uh, to the Agacons private island in the Bahamas in 2014 when he was an MP. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of genesis of the Conflict of Interest Code, which governs members of parliament, and um, how that trip uh, fits under there. So uh, we were just chatting before recording about sort of how that act came about, and it seems like the original conflict of interest code uh, had did not have provisions for for travel in the same way that the modern one does, and that had to be tightened up uh, by the last liberal government. Uh, do you want to give us some details about yeah, that? Yeah, well
1: that that was that was the 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 what's now the conflict of interest act was initially a code, um, so it was under the lobbying. Um, uh, what was what, what was his name? Howard Wilson was the uh, the ethics counselor to the prime minister, not a commissioner. Um, so the uh, the provisions were made statutory in the by the Harper government in the two thousand six Federal Accountability Act. So that created the Conflict of Interest Act, which governs ministers, uh, public office holders, including ministerial staff. Right. Um, so the provisions in the in the act. Are the ones um, that would govern the Prime Minister today as Prime Minister. The conflict of interest code for members of the House of Commons um, would uh, apply to him prior to becoming. Prime Minister, so that would be the two thousand and four uh, would relate to the conflict of interest code. So that's 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 the essential uh, division between the code and the act. Um, the act, of course, is a statute; it's an act of Parliament. The code uh, is part of the standing orders of the House of Commons, and it's adopted by members of Parliament. So the code that governs MPs is decided by MPs.
0: Right, and uh, we were talking a little bit about um, in, in two thousand three. Uh, there had been some controversy over uh, Liberal Minister Alan Rock uh, taking a private jet, or had d- gone to. I'll let you explain it. Yeah, well, I,
1: I'm just just reading, reading, reading up on the on the on the backstory. Um, uh, Alan Rock had uh, had visited uh, a fishing lodge owned by the Irving family in New Brunswick, um, and had taken a uh, uh, had taken a private plane to that. Um, there was no prohibition. Uh, uh, on taking private planes at the time, um, there were other news stories mentioning how Paul Martin uh, had taken uh, travel on on private planes owned by some of uh, you know I guess his, his friends in the business community. He had he had he had uh, paid for those, but it was still controversial. Um, so when he became prime minister in 2003, he amended the conflict of interest code uh, to include a provision, um, basically a prohibition against ministers accepting uh, travel on private aircraft. Um, that um, then carried on into the new conflict of interest act. So um, so that's 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 why the the uh, that's why the ban on private planes is in the act now, and it's a. Um, uh, you know it just says ministers cannot take travel on private planes unless it's uh, in extraordinary circumstances uh, with uh, prior approval of the ethics commissioner um, or if it's you know related to official duties right
0: uh, and we, we noted also that uh, the act contains an exemption for uh, when the, the travel is for non-business reasons and as a gift of a personal friend or rather not the travel but any sort of, sort of gifts so the, the stay at his at the Aga island would be covered because he's he's a personal friend of the prime minister.
1: Yeah. So the 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 act um, on the one hand it bans accepting any kind of um, travel on on a on a private aircraft and there's there's not really much wiggle room about that. It says right. no minister shall um, you know shall uh, shall uh, uh, what is it, what are, what are the words shall accept travel on non-commercial chartered or private aircraft. Um, but there is an, another provision where it, where it talks about accepting gifts, uh, where there is an exception for gifts given by a friend or a relative. Right. And the Prime Minister's office has been, has been I think, clear and pretty compelling in pointing out how the Aga Khan is uh, very much a friend of, of Prime Minister Trudeau and right. his family on a long-standing basis. Um, so under under that clause... Uh, the Prime Minister I think has a good argument that he could accept the gift from a friend mm-hmm. um, the uh, the statutory provision about about uh, a private flight um, seems to be less uh, flexible
0: right uh, as to his travel in 2014 when he was a uh, leader of the third party not Prime Minister yet so not a designated public office holder Um he would have been covered by the interest code, right. which does not have a friends exemption for accepting travel. Yeah, that's
1: things. that's right. So the code um, just says, you know, that that a member or a member's family um, shall not accept a gift or a benefit that might reasonably be seen to have been given to influence the member mm-hmm. in the exercise of his or her function or office. Um, so that's that's the test. There is no exception that deals with friends. Um, in terms of the code it's you can't accept a gift but then uh, then there's the 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 question can it reasonably be seen to have been given to influence so um, I guess that's what the uh, what the commissioner uh, if she's looking at this would need to would need to tell not was was the Aga Khan a friend of the family but um, would the gift reasonably be seen to have been given to mm-hmm. influence the prime minister yeah, um, given... I'm, I'm a bit i'm a bit dubious uh that the aga you know the aga Khan is giving you know a free flight to the prime minister in order to, or not the prime minister to uh, justin trudeau mp in 2014 in order to influence him right um, even though there's no ex, uh, exemption for friends um that would seem to fit in that right. the aga Khan's not really giving him this flight you know in order to influence him um but that would need to be looked into
0: right okay perfect Um, As a final question, uh, we were discussing also the the Conflict of Interest Commissioner's role in this, and uh, Mary Dawson, who is Conflict of Interest Interest Commissioner now, was recently reappointed by the Prime Minister on an interim basis for the next six months. Uh, Democracy Watch, uh, who tend to be a little gung-ho about these things, uh, have said that this puts the Conflict of Interest Commissioner herself in a conflict of interest, given that her reappointment or lack thereof will be determined by the Prime Minister, whom she is now investigating. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, Democracy Watch is, is, uh, is always vigilant. Yes. Um, they, they can always be counted on um, uh, to, uh, to, to be vigilant on these issues, and, and properly so. It's an important question. If you have an officer of parliament uh, who's tasked with um, with determining some of these highly contentious Issues and highly politicized um, issues. Then everyone has to have confidence that the commissioner's judgment is, you know, free of of uh, uh, being coerced by you know, personal circumstances, uh, being put in a conflict of interest. Um, and it is a bit awkward that uh, that her appointment. Um, uh, you know reappointment if if in fact she's interested in being reappointed would um you know be by the prime minister who she's judging in this case but in fact that's always the way it is um just the time frames normally are a bit longer the commissioner is appointed for what is it seven seven years um and is appointed uh you know on the you know if the prime minister nominates um but has to have you know um uh, support of 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 The House of Commons. So, um, uh, but obviously, the commissioner is always going to be, in some respects, um, beholden, as it were, to the Prime Minister. So there's always the potential for, you know, if you um, she was investigating Conservative ministers, and there was always a possibility that, you know, somebody could say uh, that you know Prime Minister Harper might not reappoint her if she ruled against Conservative ministers. Um, uh, I guess given the, the nature of the appointment process there's always going to be a, a question about that mm-hmm. mary dawson is a uh, a very uh long-standing uh senior public servant um so i have no concerns about um about her judgment being swayed in these matters i mean she's been you know around uh, as a senior official since the 1980s at least um, she worked on on the uh, uh, patriating the constitution so she's been around ottawa at senior levels for a very long time um, but just in principle he, he, it is a bit awkward that the conflict of interest commissioner herself is you know potentially in a placed in a conflict of interest by the way the appointment process is structured
0: right well thanks so much for your time dr wilson okay it's my pleasure
2: and that's it for today's show uh once again we definitely appreciate it if you gave us a review and hit that subscribe button so that you can listen to us every week
0: yeah and also follow us on twitter at short pants pod and what are you at oh i'm at a uh, lorandy car but i'm actually private right now
2: oh yeah why is that
0: oh just gotta exist in the world you know without uh people firing me or not hiring me because ah. i'm uh, too outspoken for my own good
2: i'm sure i'm sure this podcast really helps with that
0: it definitely does yeah absolutely i will definitely accept follows though so it's it's fine there you go what, yeah. what a,
2: how do you how do you know it's not going to be a future employer that's following you
0: ah it's. a i guess i'm screwed what if, what, <laughs> if, what, if, what if the venn
2: diagram is future employer and people who listen to the podcast well, we'll have w- to,
0: one of the same i have to take my chances all right well thank you very
1: much have a good uh have a good week
0: yeah thanks guys uh thanks for listening as usual